Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee, and I'm thrilled uh, to be moderating today's discussion on U.S.-China financial investment. This is part of the U.S.-China investment program series that the National Committee has done with the Rhodium Group now for five years. As the United States and China both contemplate policies that would limit future bilateral portfolio investment flows, the report that we rolled out this morning is now posted on our website and of course was covered in today's Reuters, Yahoo Finance, Nasdaq.com, US News and other reports adds new transparency and critical understanding to the US-China portfolio investment discussions happening in Washington, Beijing and elsewhere. We're joined today by report authors, National Committee Board Director and the founder of the Rhodium Group, Dan Rosen, and Anna Blasenko, an Associate Director of Rhodium Group to present their findings. We're also extremely fortunate to have two outstanding experts who will discuss the report's implications. Mark Weedman is Senior Managing Director at BlackRock a member of BlackRock's executive committee and a national committee board member. Constant Hunter is the chief economist for KPMG and a member of our economic track two dialogue. All of the speakers bios are available on the event webpage. So I won't dwell on their many accomplishments because if I did, we wouldn't have time for the program. We'll have Dan and Adam first share their findings and then give Matt and Constance a chance to comment and respond to one another. Then I'll moderate a Q&A with the panelists. Dan and Adam, let me turn it over to the two of you. Thank you so much. And it's so good to be back with you and the committee uh, to take our collaboration to the next uh, step here tonight um, and release this report called US-China Financial Investment current scope and future potential. Um, Adam, if you take it to the next slide, um, uh, just to say um, how appreciative we are of our chance to work with the committee on this important work and reach a, a broad audience uh, of Americans interested in the various ways in which the United States and China interact economically. Next slide, Adam. Um, people think of China as already being a global power, but really, it's only partway through the process of globalization. Further financial globalization really is the next frontier in the process for the People's Republic of China. Next slide, Adam. We have at the Rhodium Group and working with the committee for five years anticipated these next steps that China takes in phases as they have unfolded. Going back a decade ago, we, uh, recognized from the late 2000s that foreign direct investment was poised to start taking off. China being a global foreign direct investor, not just a host of companies from around the world. And the chart on the screen in front of you shows 
the large value growth in Chinese FDI to America that we've tracked over this past half decade with, with Steve and the committee. And also just as dramatic, the story of that starting to fall off in the past two or three years, largely because of capital account concerns in Beijing, not because of security concerns in Washington, although those have now become part of the story too. From the mid 2000 teens, we started adding to the story venture capital flows out of China. Venture capital into China had always been an important background story that those in technology knew well. But from 2014, 15, we started seeing the beginnings of Chinese VC investment into the United States, uh, a new channel in the relationship that also has extraordinary importance. Today, the next channel is primed to play a bigger role, and that is portfolio investment, stocks and bonds, holdings, not just China to the world, but also the world to China, because unlike FDI and other aspects, China had largely kept the door closed to this aspect of financial openness, um, even right up until recent years. Next slide, Adam. This, this, this shows the global picture of China's financial, the extent of China's financial globalization and how far we have to go. There's a zero in the middle of the chart that goes from right to left, as you can see. And it's describing to the north of the zero, above the zero, are Chinese claims on foreign assets. When Chinese hold assets abroad, stocks, bonds, which is portfolio in red, foreign direct investment at the bottom, other, other credit that they've offered to foreign firms and whatnot, and then reserve holdings of US treasuries with their foreign exchange reserves. Below the zero, China's uh, liabilities to the world, what global investors like Mark, for example, um, help intermediate for savers around the world going in and owning something in China. It's mostly been foreign direct investment in the past, companies taking that risk. But the big new story of the moment now and what we're talking about today is portfolio investment, passive savers often or active investors trying to make some money by holding stocks and bonds and other portfolio securities in China, the red underneath the zero. And as much as it's grown up to you know, China having north of $6 trillion of holding in the world today, and the world having almost $6 trillion of holdings total in China, if we do a very simple projection of what these numbers could look like in 2030, if China only became typical, had normal ratios of this kind of financial holding, normal the way that other OECD countries have, then we'd be talking about adding 15 to $20 trillion in each direction of new holdings adding to China's net international investment position. Uh, we are gonna be talking tonight about a particular bilateral pairing here in the story, United States and China, whereas this is a kind of global picture, but just to give us a sense of what the stakes are, um, it's really helpful, I think, to, to start with a chart like this. Next slide, Adam. But that picture is a picture of what would happen if things were normal. As economists like to say, uh, showing off their Latin ceteris paribus, all things being equal. But as we know, especially after the extraordinary four years that have just passed, nothing is normal right now, not least for China and not for China financial uh, uh, potential either. There, in the, in the headlines almost every day, have been stories about delisting China from American markets and blacklisting Chinese companies and pressuring American 
uh, uh, financial entities, uh, public and private, from deploying capital into China. So we have here a huge question that we need to ask uh, about what the numbers are and what the opportunities are, but we see policy moves already being made to close doors. And it turns out, as my colleague Adam is going to walk you through now, out next slide, Adam, just for transitioning to you, uh, as my colleague Adam is going to walk through, that the official data that we use to tell ourselves what we think the numbers currently are, are actually quite imperfect. And so if we don't even know what the present reality is, it's pretty tough to make good policy about what we want things to look like in the future. We learned that lesson and practiced it with the committee looking at foreign direct investment and VC in recent years. And now we're hoping to make this data contribution to better policy debate on the portfolio side. Adam, over to you. Thank you, Dan, and uh, good afternoon, good evening, uh, or potentially even good morning, wherever you may be in the world. Uh, it's my pleasure to take a little bit of time now to walk through the data methodology and uh, key findings behind our report. And uh, as Dan said, the goal of this entire exercise for us has been to uh, estimate the true stock of bilateral securities investment holdings between China and the United States at the end of 2020. And I want to start by uh, explaining uh, why that's difficult and why the work that we've done is valuable and uh, adds an important bit of uh, a light to a, uh, an area that is really sort of obscure and difficult to fully understand. How have we done this? Um, it's very difficult, it turns out, to track securities investments internationally nowadays. Uh, in the FDI and VC spaces where deal sizes are larger, where transactions are fewer, and where turnover is much less rapid, um, we've historically been able to construct these granular bottom-up data sets that shed new light on investment patterns, but this is just not possible in the securities investment space. Uh, the capital that is used to invest in securities is highly mobile. There are lower transparency thresholds, um, and small holdings are often exempted from any form of, of, of disclosure. Trading volumes are massive in liquid markets. Uh, you know, just to look at a one market in the United States in 2019, the daily uh, trading volume, average daily trading volume of US Treasury bills alone averaged more than $600 billion a day. And the ownership structures used in tracking nationality and ownership across borders are also very complex. And that's what's shown on this slide here. I wanna lay out some of the examples of the most common types of investment structures seen among US investors holding the securities of entities from China. Uh, in scenario one here on the screen, uh, you might have an institutional investor like a state pension fund who places money with a domestic asset manager. And that domestic asset manager may then in turn obtain Chinese regulatory approval to invest directly in the onshore equity securities listed on Shanghai or Shenzhen stock exchanges on this US institutional investor's behalf. This is relatively straightforward. And among the five scenarios I have on the slide deck here, this is the only one, uh, only scenario that would be accurately captured uh, in the official data that uh, most rely on to measure securities investment holdings across borders. Uh, but as I'm going to show here, there are a lot of other structures that um, are not actually captured, accurately captured in the data that are equally important. For example, you might have a US retail investor who's purchased an American depository receipt share, an ADR share, of a Chinese company like Pinduoduo. Uh, these ADRs confer ownership of the underlying equity shares of Pinduoduo's Cayman Island holding company, which exists in this third country tax haven bucket here, uh, which then in turn has a complex series of contractual relationships with the onshore Chinese corporation that infers a uh, level of control and quasi ownership. 
Um, this type of, of uh, holding structure uh, shows up as U.S. equity investment in the Cayman Islands in official data and would not be attributed as a U.S. Uh, investor holding a Chinese corporation. Uh, it's a similar case with number three here. You might have a high net worth investor who places money with an asset manager, uh, maybe even outside of the United States. So you might have a, a third party, uh, which in turn acquires the shares of a Hong Kong holding company, uh, a firm like Sinobiopharmaceutical Limited, for example, um, that in turn controls a physical business in mainland China. Uh, this, uh, assuming the uh, uh, interposition of the asset fund manager in the third jurisdiction doesn't mess up the, the custodial holdings, would be attributed as a U.S. investor owning uh, the shares of a Hong Kong company, even though, again, that Hong Kong holding company has substantially all of its operations in China. Uh, looking at the debt side in scenarios four and five, uh, you have another case here where you might have a U.S. financial institution um, who might purchase the onshore debt securities of mainland Chinese companies through an international subsidiary, perhaps using a mechanism like the China Interbank Bond Market Direct, the CIBM Direct program. This is actually not captured as a U.S. investment in Chinese securities at all because it is made through an offshore subsidiary. In most official data sets, this would be considered an official holding uh, in the official data as uh, a holding of Chinese securities being attributed to wherever this offshore subsidiary is located, even though it's owned by a U.S. corporation. Um, finally, uh, in another example here, you might have a U.S. institutional investor like uh, um, Prudential or some other uh, major uh, institutional firm who purchases dollar-denominated debt issued by a central state-owned enterprise, maybe a firm like State Grid Corporation of China, which uses a financing vehicle domiciled in the British Virgin Islands. Um, again, in the official data, this would be attributed as a U.S. investor uh, holding the debt securities of a BVI company, not a Chinese company. So. Uh, there's an, an equal number of interesting distorting structures that exist in the opposite direction as well, China to the United States, but this is illustrative of the types of challenges that exist in trying to get a true grasp on the measure of um, portfolio investment securities holdings between the United States and China. So how have we solved this problem? And my, my goal is not to go into a tremendous amount of detail here and, and dive into all of these um, uh, granular details you see on the slide in front of you, but um, high level, we've used the top-down methodology that is based on a series of estimated adjustments to official data on securities holdings between China and the United States to arrive at better measures of the true scope of two-way securities investment at the end of 2020. We've incorporated insights from academic research. We've examined various proxies for financial flows mapped in official data with known distortions. We've made some educated guesses, and we've arrived at what we think are reasonable lower and upper bounds as of the end of 2020. Um, some of these adjustments are described here, but like I said, I'm not going to go into tremendous amount of detail. Um, and then just in terms of being thorough in our coverage, our estimates are meant to cover all bilateral holdings of equity securities, including public and private, uh, as well uh, falling below that 10% ownership threshold, as well as all debt securities, including bonds, private placements, asset-backed securities, and others, whether they be issued by government or private entities. As a result, we include some holdings that do not technically fall into the portfolio investment category in official balance of payments frameworks. So for example, in that slide that Dan showed and shared with you earlier, the, the value of reserves um, on China's international investment position was accounted for differently than its portfolio investment position. We try and capture the portion of reserves that are invested in US securities. So having laid that um, somewhat technical groundwork uh, I'd like to uh, address for a moment what our key findings are looking at both directions. And I'll first address U.S. holdings of Chinese securities. Um, 
High level, we estimate that US entities held something like $1.1 trillion worth of equity and $100 billion worth of debt issued by Chinese companies at the end of 2020. That's about four times the holdings captured in official data, which you can see here on the left-hand side, the TIC, the Treasury um, um, uh, official data that were supplied as of September 2020, show only $211 billion in equity and only $30 billion in debt holdings uh, as of the latest available data when we went to print here. Looking a little bit more closely at the equity disparity, um, the, the disparity between our estimates and these official figures are mostly a result of firms from China using complex international structures to issue equity securities on U.S. stock exchanges, which results in U.S. holdings be attributed, being attributed to tax havens instead of to China in the official data, as I laid out in one of those uh, scenarios from one of those previous slides. Uh, it turns out that U.S. investors own Chinese offshore equities at much higher rates than they own onshore equities, although the, the value of direct onshore equity holdings in the official data is also growing rapidly. And despite uncertain legal treatment in China and growing regulatory pressures in the United States, as Dan laid out in the introduction, uh, this overseas listing activity really continues apace. Chinese firms raised $19 billion in primary and secondary offerings on U.S. exchanges in 2020, a total that was eclipsed only in 2014 thanks to Alibaba's blockbuster $25 billion IPO that year. So taking away that one transaction, it was a record year for new Chinese equity issuance in the United States. Uh, in the debt space, uh, while holdings of debt securities issued by entities from China are an order of magnitude smaller than holdings of equity securities, U.S. investment in Chinese debt securities has grown more rapidly than investment in equity securities during the last two years. And this is mostly a result, we think, of widening interest rate differentials between China and the United States, making fixed income in China increasingly attractive uh, compared to what you can find here, and also a result of China's continued efforts to improve access to its onshore bond market that have uh, really ramped up since 2016. Uh, again, treating, uh, treading just really, really high level here and looking at the results of our analysis for Chinese holdings of U.S. securities, we estimate that Chinese investors held something like $700 billion in equity and up to $1.4 trillion in U.S. debt at the end of 2020. In comparison, official U.S. data, which do include a portion of Chinese reserves holdings in the, in the green bar here, report $240 billion of equity and $1.3 trillion of debt holdings as of the end of September 2020. So the disparity between our numbers and the official sources are not quite as dramatic in this direction. Uh, in the equity space, most of the difference between our estimates and official figures are accounted for by equity investments misclassified or uncounted in official data due to investor efforts to either circumvent Beijing's stringent outbound capital controls uh, or to the use of investment intermediaries like Hong Kong, a lot of money that comes out of China and gets invested abroad, including in the direct investment space, the securities investment space, um, often is parked in Hong Kong along the way, and it has distortive influences. Um, these distortions are, in aggregate, actually very difficult to measure, but we estimate that the true value of Chinese holdings of U.S. equity securities may be twice as large or even, even more as the numbers of fish, uh, reported in official data. Um, looking at the debt side, debt securities actually account for the bulk of Chinese holdings, which is the opposite for uh, U.S. holdings of Chinese securities, with most of these holdings consisting of investments in U.S. Treasury and agency bonds, presumably as part of uh, China's foreign exchange reserve holdings, which have measured in the trillions of dollars since the late 2000s. Uh, and then just one note on key differences. I mentioned a moment ago that while U.S. investors have tended to prefer ownership of Chinese equities, Chinese investors in U.S. securities have preferred lending to the U.S. government and U.S. corporations at relatively low interest rates. So there are these interesting systemic differences in the patterns of holdings uh, in both directions. And they have implications. Uh, first, uh, U.S. investors tend to exert a larger uh, control 
uh, uh, component over the, the companies in China, even through these passive securities investments, than Chinese uh, securities investments uh, investors uh, enjoy in the United States. There's also likely a very large difference between the expected returns on the two aggregate portfolios since so much of China's holdings of U.S. securities are allocated to low interest rate treasury bonds, whereas most of U.S. holdings of Chinese securities are allocated to uh, much higher expected return equity securities. Uh, so what are we to take away from all of this? Just to, to step back and look at all of these numbers in aggregate, you know, whereas the official data show only $240 billion worth of U.S. Uh, holdings of Chinese securities, and about $1.5 trillion of Chinese holdings of US securities uh, in their most uh, recent release near the end of 2020, our estimates uh, really expand in both directions uh, the true scope of what we think uh, the values are. Uh, for the US to China direction, uh, we see the total at uh, as much as $1.2 trillion at the end of 2020. And for the China to US direction, uh, true holdings we think are, are worth more than $2 trillion. So in combination, uh, the value of this uh, bilateral financial uh, securities investment ties relationship is north of $3 trillion, which is um, really a staggering number. Um, with that, I'm going to step back and uh, having addressed just our high-level findings, give Dan an opportunity to talk a little bit more about the macro implications and outlook. Adam, great job. Thank you so much. It's pretty complicated stuff, but the team, I've done a terrific job, I think, at Rhodium of trying to boil it down as much as possible um, so that people can get their head around it. And I will point one thing out for some of the um, eagle eyes in the audience. Um, we labeled the graphic that Adam just finished on mainland China, and it does not include Taiwan. I'll go ahead and point that out rather than wait for somebody to ask us about it. That's because our data set does not cover Taiwan, does not cover Hong Kong. It only uh, covers the economic area of uh, mainland China and uses data sources that describe it. So um, no gotcha to the professor on that one that will make our lives um, difficult uh, around the political uh, considerations. Um, this is a chart we like to use a lot. It's describing China in the world economy in 2000 versus most recent year where we can get data across all these different fields. And I used the term normal before, you know, what, what, would, what would happen in the future if China were normal, if China were weighted, you know, either to what OECD economies are like or to its population weight. You see on the far left there, 20%, 18, 20% of earthlings are Chinese, 18% uh, in 2018, in fact. And in terms of GDP, gross domestic product, and then goods, exports, and imports, uh, and even inward and outward FDI, China has made great strides toward having a weight in the world economy that's not so unlike its population size. But on the far right of the chart, you see why we say that financial globalization really is the next frontier and that it's only just in its infancy. China really hasn't gotten out of uh, off the training wheels yet in terms of its financial interaction, either in terms of inward portfolio or outward. Um, only 2% uh, of global uh, inward portfolio, 1% of outward is Chinese today. That is nothing like what the future will be. Even if we have these policy headwinds continue, things are gonna change a lot. It's crucial that we get our head around the data better to see where we are on this normalization curve and that we understand how much of this is China being exceptional and having an overweight financial presence in our markets, let's say, as some of the hawks who just went to the beach uh, uh, last week 
um, uh, told us, or rather whether China is still quite underweight what a normal, typical global footprint would be in finance. Um, this kind of analysis, I think, provides very powerful context, which is crucial um, for us to think about. Next slide, Adam. Um, I mean, again, if we think about the number and the, the um, seriousness of very dramatic policy moves that have been taken over the past couple of years, and pretty much we have just demonstrated to you, I think beyond a reasonable doubt, that by definition, all of these moves were taken in the dark in, in, with regard to what the real financial footprint between China and the United States is. It's just the fact that the official numbers and data do not yet do a very good job. And even to the extent, therefore, that our policymakers were taking full account of what data was available, which is debatable, um, we cannot say with any confidence that they had an adequate analytic framework to work with. That is both a critique of the past and it's also a warning to the future. That current team, of course, is in a hurry to come up with the right ideas to reshape policy going forward, but we have a lot of kind of classroomy sort of work to do to make sure that we're proceeding with clear ideas in mind about what the setting is. And uh, I've spent one year at the White House. I know that nobody in that job ever thinks they have time to study or read anything more than one page, but it's just quite urgent that we in fact make time to do that. Final slide, um, Adam, and I'll close out with this, that this very slim report, which is only numbered in pages in the 20s, um, is just a starting point for discussion of many questions. It's not meant to resolve very many questions at all. It's meant to take a big step toward uh, standing on the shoulders of some other great researchers to put a clear picture of the numbers into you know, more general circulation so that we can then start a whole bunch of really tricky and tough discussions and debates. Many of those questions are gonna be about national security implications. And the brief bullets on this slide that I wanna leave you with are to point out what some of those are we like to say at Rhodium that there are circuit breakers on China's financial future. And what we mean by that is if China grows its financial system, but never faces any kind of financial instability or crisis or recessions or hard choices, then of course its firms would never die or face painful consequences, no matter how much financial leverage they took on to be bolder and bigger competitors. And if that never happened, that would mean our firms don't have a chance in hell of surviving out into the future because no company can compete with a company that has unlimited financial deep pockets. But that is absolutely not the case. The picture of China financial globalization that I showed you um, to, to 2030 is contingent on China doing an awful lot of really hard reform reforms that Xi Jinping in fact has tried to oversee the past seven years and had a pretty tough time doing. They've managed some of them, but other big moves, normalizing the renminbi, making it internationally tradable, opening the capital account, uh, uh, cleaning up the interbank market, all sorts of things that Constance and Mark live in and deal with every day as they think about the opportunities there for their clients and themselves. There's a lot of work that hasn't happened in China yet. And either China will become more financially reformed and liberal, and thus its companies will not have a seeming financial unfair advantage, or 
it will not have the kind of financial deepening and growth and big global footprint that I described a second ago. You can't have both of those. And so to American policymakers who feel like it's almost a choice they have to make now between you know, uh, standing up to China's unfair financial advantages such as they are, or staying open to uh, American participation in Chinese financial deepening, it's actually a false choice because China can't have it both ways. They're gonna have to work through these reforms and as they do, it's gonna be a little less scary to imagine China 10 years from now. This is a time of great strategic uh, difficulty of being confident around things like that. This report in no way fully unpacks and addresses that, that question. Maybe Steve, that's a, a topic for another evening, um, but it does start to improve the data so we can move toward a more rational and smarter conversation about these things. Thank you very much. And we're super excited about the panelists and the conversation. Great, it's terrific, terrific opening. Yes, and and here I was just going to suggest we we post the uh, uh, you know the link to the report which we just did in the chat. So those of you who want it, and I think the slides are pretty much all Adam. They're all subsumed in the report. There's no need to put the slides a separate link to the slides. Uh, we can absolutely provide that if there's demand, but a lot of it is in the report. Yes. Yeah, I see some people I see in the chat had asked if we could put the the slides up too. Uh, Constance, if you can turn on your camera, um, you wanna comment for 10 minutes. Thank you, that was, that was great as always. It's just such an honor to participate in this conversation again this year. Um, so I thought I'd start um, at first by setting the stage a little bit because some of the, the flows this year are a little different. Um, in part due to what happened with COVID than they've been in previous years. And, and fortunately, um, Rhodium's done a good job at, at putting this year in context and, and looking at the broad trends um, out a decade or more that we might expect um, as a result of, of China's size. So first off, I'd just like to start by saying that um, total foreign investment, for example, in US treasuries this year barely grew. It grew by $150 billion. And you may ask, why is that? Well, it is in part because of the fact that US savings grew dramatically as a result of the pandemic. Um, people were unable to spend money on a number of services that they would normally spend money on. And fiscal assistance helped uh, give savings support to families across the country. And so as a result, we're at about one and a half trillion more savings this time uh, th this year than we were this time last year. And then in addition, the Fed increased their purchases of treasuries by about 70% to almost half a trillion dollars. So um, the two, those two things combined really meant the US didn't need to rely on foreign investors to buy 1.7 billion net issuance of US treasuries. So um, in terms of official flows for this year, uh, just globally, we have fewer flows into US treasuries. And then as far as Dan was saying with regard to what is quote, a normal uh, economy investment. So if we just look at, for example, again, treasury data, which I think is the, the clearest to see, um, the UK 
has about $10 billion of holdings in US treasuries. Likewise, Japan has about 10 billion, Hong Kong, 6 billion. So it's very reasonable to expect that if we look forward five or 10 years, that we would have significantly larger uh, portfolio holdings from Chinese domestic investors into the US capital markets. Um, and then I just wanna uh, think about a little bit, um, some of what Dan was saying with regard to this choice between um, stability and uh, financial flows. And I, and I think that that would be true if China were a small open economy. So many emerging markets um, face this conundrum of having foreign direct investment come in. Um, usually a domestic event will occur. Foreign, direct foreign, direct inve foreign investors in portfolio holdings will, will pull out money. That'll have currency implications. And this happens in small economies. So if we think, for example, of Thailand um, in 1997, um, when investors fleed and the bot fell, that had implications, of course, for the Thai economy. But Thailand's a small open economy. China, very much like the US, is a large, fairly closed economy, right? So um, this makes a difference. And, and China can certainly support capital flows. Um, and 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 not have it be exceptionally disruptive to its economy. And I would further submit to you that that is one of the five criteria of being a reserve currency, right? In order to be a reserve currency, you need to have a large enough, closed enough economy that capital can flow freely in and, in and out of your country um, and your currency can fluctuate without having a significant impact on economic outcomes for your country. And so, um, in so much as China has any kind of aspirations to, to be a global reserve currency, they're, they're going to have to um, kind of get over this concern and, and realize that, that it might not be um, the heavy concern that they think it is. And then I would just say on the other side, one thing that we've seen globally, of course, is this, um, this move towards ESG investing. So uh, it is the largest growing area for portfolio allocation. Uh, we are increasingly seeing um, methodology to account for that, uh, for to do ESG accounting so that investors have a clear picture of what they're investing in. You may want to tell those in the audience who don't know what ESG is. Sure, sure. It's um, environmental, social, and governmental. Um, of course, they, and, they, didn't, they didn't read the BlackRock letter from Larry. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Mark can can supplement my, my comments here. Um, but but this um, this is going to influence portfolio allocation. So even for example, within emerging markets, there are indices like the Life and Liberty um, ETF, for example, which allocates based on these ESG criteria. And so as such, they really don't have a high portfolio investment allocation to China. In fact, I think they have a zero portfolio allocation to China. And so even though this investment in China is largely passive. Um, that isn't to say that passive investors have no implication or, or no influence on the markets that they're investing in. So, so I think we're going to see an intersection between um, this desire for diversification and this amazing opportunity that is the, the Chinese market with the preference from investors to really make sure that they are allocating in a way that fits with their values and, and right now that is an ESG intersection. 
So, so I think when thinking about future capital flows, this is something that um, increased governance within China is going to improve uh, capital inflows and, and improve the stability of that, that money um, going forward. So I'll, I'll stop there and uh, look forward to hearing Mark's comments in our discussion. Great, Mark. Well, first I wanna thank Steve and the National Committee for having us, thank you. Just to introduce myself, uh, uh, at BlackRock, I'm responsible for a number of ways that our clients are connecting with China. <clears throat> and I'm gonna try to give you the story about where we think they're going and why, and how that fits into a, a picture that I think is supportive of what we heard from the Rhodium team about uh, the capital, capital markets integration continuing over the next decade. Um, and those lenses are, we have global investors around the world who wanna invest in China. We help them do that. We have clients in China, chiefly institutions, who want to invest in the rest of the world. And then last, uh, we have clients, increasingly we have clients in China who want to invest in China. And those are the three different lenses that we think about um, that are, I think, relevant for understanding what's going on here. The big takeaways are that the level of portfolio investment in uh, China from around the world is extremely low relative to any kind of a priori model that anybody would ever come up with. Um, it's in its infancy. I think Dan used that phrase before. And the level is going to grow uh, regardless of the policy of any individual actor, including the United States. Those numbers are all going to go up. And let me try to explain why. There are two strong forces that are coming together that are relentlessly increasing these portfolio integrations. The first is capital account liberalization, which has been a 20-year policy, uh, deliberate plans set by the Chinese government. And it's been an active motion for a decade. The second, I'll come back to that in detail what I mean. The second is that all over the world, global securities investors, bonds, equities, by the way, the same thing would be true for private markets like private equity. It's actually much more advanced than this public securities uh, world, which I think is consistent with what Dan said before. Um, global securities investors all over the world um, are way under allocated today, and all of them intend to have higher allocations to China over time. So those are the two forces. China's opening up and encouraging greater flows of capital from outside, and global investors who actually have the capital are seeking to enter China. So in the first, just to give you the arc of the story, um, you have to start with the Asian financial crisis. Uh, the Chinese looked at the 1998 mess through many emerging markets and said, we don't want that. We're not gonna do that plan. Um, and so that is when they began on a massive buildup of FX reserves, which is obviously uh, in the trillions today. But another is, and I think this is an important point, it actually wasn't portfolio finance that led to the challenges in uh, emerging markets in, in, in Asia, because when a emerging market bond or equity is sold, it doesn't actually leave the country. It just gets deflated in price. It was bank finance. It was the banks pulled their lines, typically in hard currency, and that led to uh, those crises. And the Chinese took this and said, we're not doing either of those things. We're gonna build slowly a financial system that isn't privy subject to those concerns. So. They went on a multi-year journey of currency conversion, convertibility, capital control liberalization, and then just, uh, we're, and I'll talk about this at the end, integration of financial institutions across national boundaries. 
So they started 10 years ago with offshore RMB markets in Hong Kong and dim sum bonds. In 2011, they added RQFI to the strange QFI quota. These are happily, if you don't know these terms, you don't need to know them anymore. They just meant ways of restricting capital flows um, into China. 2014, they started experimenting with something they called Connect uh, Hong Kong, um, uh, Shanghai Connect, which basically allowed investors in Hong Kong to start buying securities in Shanghai as if they were actually domestic Chinese investors. In 2016, 2017, they added Bond Connect, uh, which is the same thing, just to make it easy to buy bonds. Along the way, um, the Chinese, uh, uh, or I should say the IMF, added the RMB to uh, the special drawing rights, which is a totally symbolic act, but it does suggest an effort towards convertibility of the currency. And then in 2017, all of the big index providers, that's MSCI, it's Bloomberg, it's FTSE, uh, all started actually increasing their allocations to China. So the basic benchmark whether you're an index investor or you're an active investor, you think in benchmarks. And all those benchmarks, the global benchmarks for emerging markets, for global bonds, all started including more and more Chinese exposure over time. So that's all kind of forces that are, cre that are basically saying money come to China. Well, from the perspective of the actual holders of capital, if you look in almost any portfolio of almost any individual institution around the world, um, you will find that Chinese investments uh, will be a very small percentage of that portfolio. If from the Chinese perspective, you'd see that only 3%, they, the People's Bank of China says, that only 3% of Chinese securities, equities, and bonds are held from people outside of China. So that's a very, very low allocation relative to what you would see for any other large economy. And the logic for change is not just that the Chinese government wants people to invest there, it's actually why investors are moving money. From a portfolio equity investor's perspective, it's very simple. First, China's buried in the emerging markets category. That's the main way people have China exposure is they own emerging markets. That's a category that's 40 years old. I question its relevance anymore. And especially as these inclusion ratios, in other words, how much of China is counted as part of a global index, keeps increasing. What we're finding is eventually China will become half the EM index. I, I'm not sure that concept has any meaning at that point. People will consciously be thinking about investing in China. But that is increasingly what they're doing when they buy EM. China has a much lower correlation than general EM uh, to uh, de developed markets. In equities, it's 0.4 as opposed to 0.6. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that it is a closed market and they'll probably converge a bit more. But the other part is, and I think Constant just spoke about it, China's not a small open economy. It's a huge economy. Sorry, lost well, you there. Um, and so uh, we may see that correlation persist. The growth trajectory in the U.S. In, is clearly superior to the U.S., which attracts uh, investors from all over the world. Um, that leads to the, the equity demand. For yield, and I think Dan spoke about this before, it's a yield logic. It's very simple. Treasuries earn sub 1% right now. Chinese sovereigns earn about 3%. Um, if you buy euro bonds, government bonds, German bonds, you earn a negative yield. If you get yen, you'll get a zero. So if you want yield, you're going to go to China. And to give you a sense of how quickly that money is flowing, and Dan's absolutely right, it's extremely hard to track this money, but you can see it in your own funds. We had a fund that about 14 months ago that was $250 million. It's a China bond ETF in London. So it's domiciled in Europe. 
um, everybody except the US buys there. And it went from $250 million about 14 months ago to $7 billion today. That is extremely fast growth. That reflects that thirst for yield. Um, so that's the stories of these two things coming together. We think this is very early. Infancy is right. We're going to move into adolescence. And eventually, many years from now, we expect that China will be a significant part of everybody's portfolios globally uh, for anybody who's globally allocated. Um, I just want to quickly just mention that um, the Chinese are uh, also encouraging, taking vote, I would call it the final chapter, or at least in this, in this volume of the story, about opening up the domestic financial services market. And their goal there is to encourage uh, foreign uh, portfolio investing and familiarity with the Chinese markets. But it's actually also, and this is very important, it's to develop the domestic markets. Um, the reason why the Chinese government has finally decided to allow asset managers to enter into uh, the domestic business there, and we are one among others, is that they're saying we need foreign expertise and capital to come um, to professionalize and institutionalize these markets. Um, if you do a survey globally, you would find that China stands out as almost like Alice to the looking glass uh, from the perspective of a global investor. Nothing works like it does anywhere else. Derivatives is actually a retail market in China. The share market um, um, what the Chinese government is seeking is someone to institutionalize them. This links back to this portfolio in connection because part of what the Chinese government is looking for in the outside world is actually, um, sorry, we've got to turn off the do not disturb. Can you, you have me there? Great. Do not is, what they're seeking is, um, is a professionalization. So I just want to pause there and just recap what we're talking about here, which is capital account liberalization, 10-year plan of active motion, combining with positive yields and a logic where Chinese equities ought to be a bigger part, just starting from scratch of anybody's portfolio and a market cap weighted should be five, 10, 15, 20% of people's portfolios. But right now you'll find it's almost zero. We're very close to that. We're just buried in an EM exposure. Um, put those forces together and regardless of the policies of any individual country, you will see those numbers rise over time. Fascinating. Very, I mean, this is this is an amazing, both amazing data. I mean, stunning that we again our public data can be so off, leading to, yeah, you know, that's significant. <laughs> a trillion here, a trillion there, Dan. You start talking about real money. Um, the question, I guess, is you know we're hearing from the started with this one. We're hearing from the new administration that financial services opening. Uh, in China to American firms, which was a big deal to the previous administration, is not a big deal to this administration. Um, you know, Jake Sullivan has stated that quite explicitly. How, each of you, how do you respond to that? I guess start with Mark, because it's obviously, it's very important to BlackRock, but also want to hear from Constance, Dan, and Adam. Well, first I want to thank many administrations probably five or six in a row that have been actively seeking to expand the opportunities for U.S. financial institutions in China. So it's been going for a very long time. Uh, it is true that in the phase one agreements, uh, there was specific call out for asset management. Um, I really want to thank the folks at USTR for helping us there. Um, I don't think they really did it. This is uh, a deliberate policy from the highest levels um, of the Chinese government 
to encourage a set of Chinese asset managers uh, to get to learn from and work from foreign asset managers. That is the plan. Um, and so you saw quickly that, um, for example, JP Morgan was allowed to own 100% instead of 49% of their fund company in China. We were allowed to start something. These reflect, um, I think, domestic priorities, which are one, institutionalization and professionalization of that market, but also two, um, a desire to help on the retirement crisis. If you're a policymaker in Beijing, what you're thinking is, or and you're worried about economic and financial policy, very high on your list is the retirement crisis, which is as severe in China as anywhere in the world. And they're desperately looking for foreign players to come, not to contribute capital, but to contribute know-how from based on the rest of the world on how actually to build savings products that actually will help take some of the burden off of the Chinese government. Dan, you want to, or Constance, you want to say anything on that? Uh, totally agree with Mark. Uh, uh, Chinese were chasing Donald Trump's plane down the runway after his visit to Beijing, trying to get him to sign a financial opening agreement so that they could say, we did it because the foreigners pressed us to. But the reality is China needs to get its door open for its own sake because of the retirement crisis, as Mark puts it, which I think is super important to underscore that. And just systemically, by keeping these buffers in place for so long, China prevented itself from being exposed to an Asia financial crisis problem, but it created a different problem, which is that its strange ecosystem has not been stress tested the way that others have. And it permits the leadership, this, particular, this special political access to the financial system, the banks especially, to ward off all sorts of other growth problems, but that has undermined the efficiency of financial intermediation in China. And it has embedded all sorts of structural risks, frankly, in that system. Now, Beijing has no choice but to make itself, ultimately make itself interoperable with a very dynamic, very stress-ready global financial system if it's ever gonna get out of the, the crosshairs that it is it, you know, put itself by solving one problem has created a, a different one, I think. So I, I just completely agree with, with the way Mark described that. And I would add to it um, that China doesn't need Washington to push the door open uh, in, uh, in, in finance. Yeah, and I'll just um, agree with what uh, Mark and Dan have said. I mean, the I don't think this is a priority necessarily of the Biden administration because it doesn't have to be a priority of the Biden administration. Um, and, and certainly um, the, the yield play um, on, on Chinese bonds is attractive enough in its own right. Um, and, and one of the things, if, you are, if you're looking to solve a retirement crisis, right, it, nothing, nothing uh, helps you forecast future investment returns like a steady stream of incoming capital flows. Uh, so so this is this is in China's interests and I and, and I wonder if one of the reasons it doesn't have to be a priority of the Biden administration is that it's already sort of taking care of itself. By the way, I think in addition to the yield kind of benefit you get, um, we're seeing this inflow is creating appreciation in the RMB. So if you're a dollar-based investor, not only you're getting a higher yield, but you're getting the benefit of RMB appreciate. We've seen the, the, the uh, from seven to six point five. Dan, you want to? <laughs> you know, I, there I would I would stand with Constance and warn you against chasing 
affecting the short-term dynamics that are moving the exchange rate around. But that has been a, a big kicker that made the deployment into Chinese bonds, not only the yield, but the exchange rate gains there, um, if you take that presently, is tremendous. We, we, my, my other colleagues at Rhodium have strong ideas about what's going to happen with renminbi this year that I'll leave for a different time. Um, but for the moment, anyway, it's been a big factor. But what struck me when you talked about the 20, you know, it was also the conversation I had with Ray Dalio on our Chinatown Hall program. If, you know, he's 3% allocated, he says, I'm moving to 15% allocated. You talk about 15 to $20 trillion right. will flow into China. Yeah. Realistically, a, that affects, that is going to, they're going to have to, it's, they're going to have to appreciate the RMB and investors have to take that into account. Whether well, it appreciates from now through next July, you don't know, but over a five to 10 year period, it's a pretty good bet. There's a heuristic we, we use um, that the outflows are hardwired and the inflows are contingent. And what we mean by that is that unlike the typical global saver, um, uh, Mr. Joe, the tip, you know, your, your average Joe in China is about 99% home biased in their life savings. <laughs> All of their, everything they've ever earned is tied up in one asset class property in one emerging market, China. And even if you're long China, which I am, Lord knows, that's not great portfolio theory. And so given that China has the largest money supply in the world, the largest marginal growth of savings on the planet, bar none, we're definitely going to see even a modest amount of normalization of the non-home bias would mean many, many trillions of dollars of outflow. The world, starting with Mark, is super ready and eager to deploy correspondingly large amounts of money into China. However, there are a few prudential and fiduciary obligations, such as you need to know that that capital account is not just experimentally open, but if you're going to put $10 trillion in the country over the next decade, it has to be ironclad that China's bank is not going to step in in a crisis in the next crisis, as it did in the, in the last crisis, and lock the doors and send in a national team to start stabilizing the markets the way they did. Now, Mark has you know different, much more sophisticated point of view about that than I do, I know. But this basic idea that outflow outflows are hardwired inflows contingent on reforms that I'm confident are going to happen too, but we got to see them happen to make this math fully play through. The, um, a lot of the questions that are being submitted are similar to one that I've, that I've asked, but Nick Borst asks it nicely. He says, U.S. policymakers have powerful, to have powerful tools of economic statecraft available to them, such as limiting access to our capital markets, as we've seen, and flows from US investors, as we've seen. However, if we overuse these tools, we may end up damaging the preeminent role the United States plays with the global financial system. What is the right balance? Mark, you want to start with that? Uh, uh, I would say the, the horses. Go ahead. go ahead. Sorry, Constance, please. No, oh, no. no I, was, I was just thinking. You go first. OK. Um, uh, well, I'd say respectfully, uh, the horse is out of the barn. Uh, we have permanently damaged, uh, from the Chinese perspective, the reliability of U.S. capital markets. And we have taken Hong Kong, which was a left for, I don't know about dead, but left for senescence market, and uh, reinvigorated it. The future capital market center for China is Hong Kong. It's not New York and it's not Shanghai. Um, and uh, 
what we've done is actually interestingly, and I, I don't think it was a particularly considered policy uh, by Congress, uh, nor by the Trump administration, is in a unilateral way, we've basically said, if you want to invest in China, you'd best go directly to China or go to Europe, to the vehicles there. And so that's kind of the message that global investors have taken, which is, um, I'll just buy my securities, even if I'm a US asset manager, I'll buy those securities in Hong Kong or uh, increasingly Hong Kong, as opposed to things that would have otherwise been listed here. So um, I, I think that uh, the question of balance uh, in the, is, unfortunately, I think we already tipped it. Uh, and uh, 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 whether that is good long-term for national security, I, I leave to others, but I, I do know that um, the, in my view, the horse is out of the barn. Irreversible? Um, irreversible is a very strong word, Steve. Uh, you would need to have uh, some form of concord, some broader agreement on the role of uh, portfolio uh, finance so that Chinese companies were more secure in accessing U.S. capital markets directly as opposed to what is going to happen and is happening now is they list in Hong Kong and exactly the same portfolio manager simply buys the Chinese or Hong Kong security as opposed to buying a U.S. security. That's all that's changed. Constance, Dan, Adam? Well, I would just say since, since money is fungible, as Mark has pointed out, um, in a way, it's a little bit of a toothless policy. But of course, in another way, um, you know, our, our capital is one of our, our greatest weapons. And so by, by saying that we're gonna officially limit access to US capital, it's certainly sending a strong message. Um, and I think, I think what, what has to happen in order for this to change is better relations um, with regard to um, US China or probably China and other uh, international security organizations uh, and, and how they interface together. I think, I think we're not going to be able to paper over this by just changing or reversing the financial rules, right? Because the, this was, the congressional action was bipartisan. So there is, a, there is a strong sort of desire that some lever had to be pulled here and that that lever wasn't going to be a military lever, so it was a financial lever. And I think, I think we need to address at a fundamental level the uh, coexistence of two military powers, the US and probably a growing China military power um, in order to fully resolve this. Dan or Adam? Good, there's a lot of great questions in the chat, Steve. I'll let you curate. Uh, yeah, if, if, if it's all right, just 30 <laughs> seconds, just revisiting some of the data pieces that I talked about earlier in the presentation. Um, a really interesting statistic that we uh, discerned as part of this exercise is realizing again that 2020 was like the second biggest year for new uh, equity issuance uh, among Chinese firms and U.S. exchanges, uh, just barring that 2014 year with Alibaba. Um, there's a little bit of variability among the quarters. Uh, the fourth quarter definitely saw a slowdown in momentum, but it didn't slow to zero. Uh, there were a couple of pretty high profile IPOs on U.S. exchanges uh, involving Chinese firms. And so even with all of this uh, swirling around, um, you know, holding foreign companies accountable act and um, uh, pushing the SEC to adopt harder guidelines uh, that would force uh, delisting if there's not compliance with account accounting standards, uh, threats of delisting through executive order, 
all that didn't bring it to a halt. So but, but I at, see, Adam, at, yeah. at the, the spirit, except they've all listed in Hong Kong at the same time. So what's happening is they're all in buying their own insurance policy, which is they can't rely on U.S. capital flows uh, and access. And I think that's a very big change. That wasn't true five, seven years ago. Tech firms listed here because it was where they could get the best valuations. And that's a big change. I agree. Absolutely. Um, but we'll just add for some flavor to the conversation as well, pointing out that I don't think it's clear to Chinese tech firms at large that listing in Hong Kong or on mainland exchanges is without its uh, potential pitfalls, as Ann Financial is realizing. Um, and so there are still things like valuations and, uh, you know, rule of law expectations in the U.S. that some Chinese firms find attractive. Uh, but I do think it's an open question if uh, the U.S. is, is going to be able to ever sort of retain, reattain that level of uh, prominence, especially vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong, like Mark mentioned. Yeah. Without having coordinated these policies with other markets, it was simply playing whack-a-mole that by denying them access here, it just popped up in London, in Singapore, and especially in Hong Kong, and that it was a policy, from my perspective, that was so ill thought out that if it's the right policy, then you got to coordinate, as President Biden is saying now, with our allies. Otherwise, you're just punishing the lawyers, the accountant, accountants, the, the banks in the United States that don't have presences in Singapore, London, Hong Kong. Catherine Pan asks a very interesting one, quite specific. Can you please, she's a, hosts us, when we used to have physical meetings would be our host at Dorsey and Whitney. Um, can you please comment on the impact of DODs and OFACs, Chinese, communist Chinese military, list and the related executive order and OFEC guidance on U.S. investors' ability to invest in Chinese companies' stock. Anybody want to take that one? I mean, I can make a, an observation about it. Um, uh, and others might be able to, to, to say, say something more clear about the, the implications in the market than I can. But I, I will say this, that it's entirely appropriate for the government of the United States to have policies, rules, and the ability to step into financial flows that uh, benefit firms that are, you know, legitimately defined as being um, uh, somehow hostile to the interests of the United States or to present a direct threat to our national security. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with traditional American OFAC, uh, Office of Foreign Financial Assets Control and Treasury type authorities. I don't have a, a problem with the Defense Department's ability to step into the debate about what is national security concerning and what is not. We live in a, an extraordinary time in which the nature of the vulnerabilities that new technologies present has evolved so quickly that it's overrun our traditional expertise and ability to discern what's a legitimate government you know, necessity of stepping in and trying to change financial flows and what is some other agenda hidden under the guise of national security, right? And of course, so much of this happens in, in classified um, world that we're not privy to that we're told we have to take it on faith, which is all the more difficult after an administration such as the one we've all just lived through, those of us still living who can be on this call tonight, right? Um, so, you know, we, we really need to have a larger discussion about how to update 
the relationship between our defense function in America and our economic leadership role in the world. It's not you know, entirely um, surprising to me that some of these really tricky questions around what was necessary and what was not arose the way they did. The manner in which they were handled has clearly raised more questions than it has resolved them. And it's made it very difficult for other advanced liberal democracies to work with the United States to develop a, a shared approach to dealing with these concerns. Yeah. So um, that's what I think about it. <laughs> My point is really a narrow one, which is wherever, whatever we decide, we can decide, but if others are not with us on it, it is pointless. We simply are punishing Americans and we're it doing- It depends, that. Steve, it depends. In some areas, like for example, take all the work we did on venture capital together the past couple of years, in most areas of real high tax, portfolio. No, no, he, he's talking about portfolio investments. Dan. Talking about portfolio. Yeah, no, I know, but by but but the, I, we should not. I mean, there if it is not done multilaterally, I, it's pointless. Look, I, I think it's look, it just it's. Bank. I have it's, run an investment bank in Hong Kong. I can assure you, yeah, it didn't I'm, really matter to us if it ended up being issued in New York and ended up being issued in Hong Kong. I got the same fee out of the deal. It's, I understand, but Steve, I think that I think the theory, I think the theory of action among the more thoughtful hawks in Washington in the past four years was that other liberal democracies also were uncomfortable with some aspects of being interoperable with China, and that by standing up and showing that it was willing to act first, the United States could uh, impel a coalition of uh, of action. Unfortunately, it was done so poorly, in my opinion, that the prospect of that actually happening, you know, was never a very good one. But, the, you know, I, I think the uh, you're absolutely correct that if it's always America alone on this, it's not going to really have the desired effect. It is costing American jobs. These policies are costing American jobs. And I think it's important when we have a discussion like this, that we should be conveying to the new administration that this stuff needs to get reversed quickly because American firms are losing their market leading positions. And to the extent that this continues to erode, it's costing us jobs in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, you name it. It's costing us jobs. We are losing- That is true, but, but, that's, but, that's, but that's, half a, that's half a ledger here. We also have to look at the, at the legitimacy of the national security considerations. And there are things that a country like the United States may have to do that cost jobs, um, but have a, a legitimate national security purpose. So we have to look at both sides and make a decision. So the report today is meant to provide a better information starting point for that kind of a you know, cost benefit analysis. I see Catherine asked the next question, which was, do you think the Biden administration will reverse these, these um, decisions? Anybody wanna, nobody wants to offer a guess. Um, how do you think a number of questions have come up and Dan, maybe you know the most about this, about the EU-China investment agreement as well as RCEP, that China signing both of these. And does that suggest to you that these countries are not gonna be moving along with the United States with respect to cutting China off from capital markets? Patricia doesn't give her last name, is them. Um, our European friends would point out that the United States did its phase one agreement first, 
and in fact borrowed some of the terms in it that were meant to be going into the CAI in Europe. And so they were only sort of trying to keep pace with American, uh, you know, having a separate piece um, approach. I think that we'll see, we'll see how the RCEP works. Um, you know, uh, it hasn't worked brilliantly for protecting uh, Australia's economic interest yet, <laughs> but give it some time and, and we'll see once the CAI is finished in about a year and a half or two, how it's implemented then will we'll de demonstrate whether it's an effective approach. I'm sure Mark has a perspective constant probably on those things too. I, I actually, Dan, I largely agreed with you. I just think we have to keep coming back to the, there's an illusion in Washington that if we just say stop to something that everyone else in the world will somewhat follow or it won't be that big a deal. And the problem is we're a much less relevant country than we were in 1960. Um, and uh, I just think that if we, coming back to something that you've said that Steve has emphasized, if we had in all this, I completely see the point of suspending finance offshore finance to Chinese military entities. I can see the logic behind that. Um, I make no viewpoint on it, but I can see the logic. But doing it by blocking off, it's like blocking off like one lane of a nine lane highway. You're not doing anything. Um, and uh, and I think that's the, the key thing that we have to take as a, in terms of policy is we have to work in concert with other, um, the other big capital uh, sources, particularly the Europeans. And if we do that, we're far more likely to be effective. Um, I'd also say that the regarding the particular OFAC uh, and the most recent round, really the last quarter in Q4, um, the administration, the pure execution of them was clearly without any interagency process. It was like people were throwing stuff on the wall and publishing it, reversing decisions 24 hours later. It was a real mess. And I would say um, it just reflects the lack of consideration. It was an urgency to do something. The world's complicated. We're going to have to bring some other people along to, quote, do something. Yeah, I, I would agree. We're going to have to be much more thoughtful, much more comprehensive um, in the way we approach this if we're going to be effective. Um, Betty Louis asks about, um, I don't know if you want to get into this. Can you give your thoughts, insights on the DCEP, the Digital UN, and whether you believe this will lead to the internationalization of the RMB. It's kind of outside. I guess it relates a little bit to capital, so it's a bit outside of what we're we're talking about today. So, I, I'm happy to come in on central bank digital currencies generally, right? Um, so, uh, the idea being that it, it's a much more efficient way to distribute um, fiscal assistance uh, directly into a digital wallet. Um, to the extent uh, part of your population is unbanked, for example, um, it can solve that problem. Uh, and so um, I don't know how um, the, the internationalization of digital currency is, is something that is still being worked out, right? So if you're going to be able to, to take a, a closed blockchain system in one country and, and take a a central bank issued digital currency and exchange it for another central bank digital currency, unclear to me that whether that increases cross-border flows or actually in some ways stifles them, um, especially if these are the clo closed systems within the countries where this currency is issued. So it's, it's really a tool for central banks to um, 
take advantage of blockchain technology to distribute fiscal assistance, uh, again, directly to the citizenry. And of course, I suppose if, if necessary, uh, collect taxes down the road, right? So, so in terms of tax collection, it, it potentially has some, uh, some benefits, um, but unclear what the international convertibility will be for central bank issued digital currency. Right, that's right. Um, interesting question from Chen Zhang at the Bank of China. How well can international investors invest in China's bond and stock markets without an onshore presence? Many of the uh, programs that the Chinese government has put in place over the last 10 years have basically been to enable uh, exactly what you're asking, to make it easier for uh, non-domestic investors to buy equities and bonds. The primary thing that the Chinese government has done is say, buy, you can buy through Hong Kong. Uh, if you're familiar with how to buy in Hong Kong, you can buy Chinese equities and bonds, A shares. Um, uh, so that's the main way. But for many investors globally, they actually are looking for simple vehicles that will allow them to just simply buy the exposure and move on. They don't want to deal with the complexities of a relatively new market for them. And that's the reason why we see the growth of uh, both active and index fund uh, purchases by institutions who normally would buy, ind buy individual bonds. Nowadays, they're buying them actually through funds. Now, in 10 years, they may buy them directly. But for now, they're buying them through funds as a simple, cheap, efficient way to get that exposure and move on. And that's, for example, when I mentioned that ETF in, in London, that's exactly what it is. It's just people saying, I want Chinese bond exposure. I want to just get it done today and not think about it. Um, and, you know, in the same way that in 10, you know, in today buying JGBs or Bunds is easy for a U.S. investor or a treasuries for a German investor. Maybe one day it'll be like that for China. For, for now, it's, it's significantly more complicated as people choose a bundle. And it's a dollar denominated fund? No, it's renminbi. So it's a, it's a renminbi. No, you're buying, you're buying straight into, uh, a, um, in, into Chinese bonds, which is what people want, without any of the hassle. At a relatively low cost and other people offer the product this is not an advertisement for my firm but you're welcome to buy it if you're a european investor uh chris merck longtime member of the committee he used to be uh running uh amcham in beijing uh the prc could step take steps to improve its financial integration with the u.s and global markets for example by allowing prc companies listed in the u.s and their accountants to comply with accounting rules to which all other US listed companies are subject or resolving the legal and regulatory uncertainty of the VIE structure. Is there any likelihood of that happening? Mark will have a professional grade opinion because I know BlackRock probably has lots of people watching the issues very closely. I can say, you know, uh, I can speak freely uh, and say that I'm fully aware that the SEC and other authorities in Washington who were concerned about that issue felt that there was there was no um, there was no insurmountable obstacle to resolving that issue of accounting concern if there were basic political goodwill on both sides. There's going to be tons of those kinds of issues, especially given that even in the most convergent possible scenario, China's not going to be exactly like the OECD economies. And yet, if there's goodwill, then folks can find adequate ways to address consumer welfare or regulator exigencies or, or whatever it happens to be, I think. I don't know, Mark, do you, are, are there some things that are going to be just too tough and not to crack or what do you think? No, I, I 
Dan, I completely agree. In fact, I, what I was thinking was, I think there's a bit of arrogance in the U.S. perspective on accounting standards. Uh, and there's a little bit of an anti-Chinese bias here. Putting aside political concerns, which is a completely legitimate question, but call it as such, let's remember that two of the top 30 DAX companies have shown to have massive uh, governance and fraud problems in the last two to three years. Um, no one's talking about delisting Volkswagen in the United States. And so if it's a pure economic one, I think you have to get back to what are you really worried about? And I think it comes back to the goodwill point, which is the foundation of any of this. People, uh, so I, I just was listening and thinking like, we shouldn't try to dress up uh, concerns that are actually endemic in large fragmented capital markets uh, and blame them on China um, uh, with goodwill and the Chinese desire, they really do want to improve domestic standards. Um, there are lots of problems. Of course there are. That's why they're trying to get foreign companies to help. It doesn't help to shut them down out of the U.S. markets because then we lose even the, 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 the carrot of greater, uh, greater integration. My view, just my view. Yeah. I was on a call late Friday night with a senior member of, of the CSRC said that exactly what both Dan and Mark are saying. This is totally a political issue. We can resolve it in very quickly. And in fact, we offered to resolve it, but the political head of, of the, um, what's the accounting um, organization? FASB. Yeah, FASB. Just didn't want to do it. He was instructed not to, not to make progress, so they didn't make progress. I assume this was done because I was not the only one on this call. This was done with the view of informing the Biden administration that this could be resolved without um, too much trouble and then get to Constance's point, which is the legislation then would be satisfied, you know, that this would not be something, you know, something where we could comply um, with, where the Chinese could comply with the legislation. Uh, Clay Doobie asks, apart from politically inspired complaints about accounting standards, audit access, how might investor worry, how might investors worry about the reliability of auditing and rating assessments and how would that affect portfolio flows? Well, I, I would say, um, you know, on the, on the rating side, for example, um, there is some criticism of local Chinese rating agencies and they're subject to, to some of the flaws that we saw in US and global rating agencies during the global financial crisis. Um, but greater capital flows into China uh, is likely to positively influence that. Um, and certainly um, to the extent that we see greater professional uh, investment uh, know-how expanding within China, that, that will also have an influence on that market. Um, so, so it'll be it'll be something that investors will require in order to deploy significant amounts of capital. Steve, if I could just add, thank you, thank you, Counselor. I, I agree with that. I, um, to, to answer the question, I start by off start. You wouldn't talk talk about investing in the United States. You talk about a sector or a kind of company or something like that. And if you start thinking about China like that, you start to break up the capital market. You have old state-owned enterprises. Um, and then you have uh, extremely advanced technology companies in every sector. Um, there you have consumer companies. There's a huge array. And probably the, for now, 
the most reliable way if you're concerned with, I think, good reason about uh, capital markets that are much less mature and transparent than in uh, the United States is to choose an active manager who is good at what she does in picking those securities. That would be my broad guidance on the equity side. On the bond side, most foreign uh, purchases are really going into sovereigns or into policy bank issues uh, or very high-end credit. So I think that's less of a concern there. Um, although again, an active manager, and by the way, we're a very large index house and an active manager, um, I think it's probably the way that we think that most investors will get over that problem, uh, which is, um, hmm, I need a professional to help me here. Um, and succession in, in this institutionalization and professionalization is actually an index fund is as reliable uh, in China in 2030 or 2040 as it is in the United States or the UK. What does China need to do to get there? There's, we, we talk about, you know, and Dan made reference to this in his remarks that, you know, we talk about potential inflows that are truly enormous. 15 to 20 trillion is, you know, we're getting close to U.S. total debt. Uh, the, the, uh, what does China need to do? I guess that's mostly for Dan. Boy, um, <laughs> or there, there, there's, there's both a, a, a parsimonious answer to that and, and some very rich answers, um, by which I mean, you know, I, I, I think probably the constructive, the productive thing for us to talk about are all the specific regulatory steps entailed with going from being a, you know, an unopened uh, a developing country to being a more advanced economy. Um, everyone who's considered, you know, uh, the, the most um, uh, predictable and, and mature markets in the world has gone through crises and gone through the learning process. You can't really build up the human capital necessary to regulate markets until you've gone through some pretty rough patches and resolve them in the normal way at home, you know. So I think there's a lot of human capital formation, we would say, as an economist, that comes from the experience of maturation and, and learning to go head-to-head -head against folks like Mark's firm uh, with the um, aided and abetted by folks like Constance's firm um, to help guide you through you know, risk-taking, which is what it's all about. The, 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 the more complicated part of the answer, though, is that there is such a fetish for stability in China today. And I, I appreciate that. I, I have known, come to know a little bit about Chinese history, and I appreciate the, the um, tumult and terror of the instabilities of the past and the long shadow that casts. But there's, there's such a thing as too much stability. And in order to enable this kind of market potential that we're all excited and talking about, there's going to have to be some, not just economic regulatory change, but political change. And uh, it seems to me that the political authorities are going to have to put on the so-called golden handcuffs that will stay them from the temptation to reach in and try to promote stability the next time that it, it's the season when the weak need to be called from the herd so that resources can be redeployed to the better companies. And unfortunately, when Whenever the incumbents, state-owned enterprises and otherwise, have been faced with the prospect of really being displaced by some independent new power firms, um, government has leaned against that process for fear of the sociological and political consequences. And so that's a really big idea and thing for a symposium rather than a, a quick walk through the regulatory code. 
Um, but I think both are, are, are crucial parts of the, the, the answer and the outlook. Constance, did you wanna? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would largely agree with Dan. And I, I think this, this stability consideration that Mark so ably outlined earlier um, really is something that now at China's size isn't as significant. And as I mentioned, you know, um, like the US, China is a large closed economy for all intents and purposes. And so now that it has gotten to this size, something like portfolio flows are unlikely, even if they grow to the size that we're all anticipating they will grow to, are unlikely to be destabilizing for an economy of China's size. So um, I think that by managing it the way the government has to this point, they've really mitigated a lot of that risk um, and that opening up now would, would not present nearly the types of risks that they're worried about that we saw, for example, in Thailand during 1997. Mark, do you have anything on that one? No? I mean, what I, what I, Adam, did you want to add anything on that? You know, I obviously, I'm, I'm looking at this from a, a broader perspective and when stability is challenged in any way, shape or form, whether it's respect to political reform, whether it's respect to uh, lawyers who are representing human rights activists with respect to Hong Kong, with respect to Xinjiang, the response is always an overreaction towards stability, that it is far excessive to what we think they could do to bring the problem under control. So, you know, when we looked at the, when the capital controls were put in, um, was that necessary? Maybe, maybe not. Was it certainly excessive? Yep. Uh, did things dry up pretty much overnight? Yep. Um, it's, it raises interesting questions about, does it move to, 20 trillion by 2030, or do people become um, nervous about doing that? And also relates to the China, uh, the RMB as a reserve currency. Uh, well, central bank is pretty much the most conservative animal that you can find. And if he is going to hold or she is going to hold um, renminbi in the current in the country's reserves they better be darn sure they can convert it. And if they can't, if there's a fear that they won't, they're gonna limit what sits in the reserves. Constance, go ahead. Yeah, I, I would just say that, you know, if you're gonna enact um, good policy, then you don't need to worry about the stability issue. Um, if you're not gonna enact good policy, right? Money will leave your country. You will see capital flight, whether it's domestic capital flight or foreign capital flight. So, so it is, it is a, a governor um, around what types of policies can realistically be enacted. Um, with that said, though, I, I don't think that, that China, um, that, that that should be their biggest concern, right? If they, if they want to develop the way that they all, that they say that they want to develop, then, then they're going to enact policies that are that are going to support that development. Steve, let me offer a, maybe a final thought um, in terms of sort of what the motivations might look like from Beijing's perspective. Think back to that net international position chart I showed you earlier this evening. What it's telling us is actually that China is a net 
lender to the world. China has a greater claim on the world holding world assets than the world is presently holding China. And there's a lot of commercial opportunity from the world being permitted to and taking the opportunity to hold more China, yes. But one of the funny things for where we are right now is that because China has been uh, so kind of conservative in letting the market shape these financial flows, on net, China is lending the world about a trillion dollars right now. And yet, because it's holding global securities that pay like half of percent of yield, whereas what the world holds in China is foreign direct investment, as we've been working on for years, and these much higher yielding debt instruments now that Mark's helping people access, China is probably paying the world income in order to lend it a trillion dollars a year on net. I haven't done those, I haven't refined those. That was true a couple of years ago and helped explain why they wanted to move into FDI from just holding treasuries. It's all the more true now as this two-way uh, this two-way portfolio picture plays out. Um, that's you know not a great performance for the uh, the nabobs of Beijing to point to that for lending the world a trillion bucks, they're probably paying the world um, for that privilege. So lots more questions and things to talk about in this vein. Okay. Adam, Dan, thank you so much for preparing the report. It is truly fascinating and has provoked a great discussion. Mark, Constance, thank you so much for giving so generously of your time. This was really, really fascinating. I wish we had another five hours because I've got lots of other questions, but um, it's um, it really was a terrific discussion. I thank the audience I see who stayed with us from beginning to end. So we were right to make this a 90 minute program, but thank you all. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.